Our May Day podcast features extracts from a conversation held in Heon Wai at the winter weekend last year with the historian Hallie Rubenhold, author of The Five, an extraordinary reclamation of the lives of women written out of history, and it's made even more powerful by the contrast with the grotesque fetishization of the man who murdered them. It's a social history of Victorian London with all its class, poverty, disease and the sheer complexity of the different moralities available to different stratas of society. The book fell in publication into a time that was the very heat of the Me Too movement and in an award season when Bernadine Evaristo and Margaret Atwood shared the Booker Prize, this book won the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction and was also voted by our audience the Hay Festival Book of the Year. Before we talk about uh, destitution and prostitution and politics and the guy who killed them, let's just start by naming these five extraordinary women whom you have given their stories back to, who are Mary Ann, known as Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Catherine Eddowes, Elizabeth Gustav Dotter, known as Stride in England, and Mary Jane Kelly. I think it's important, as your book does, to wrap their names around this story. And having done that, let me ask you the the, the simplest of questions, is that you came to them looking for prostitutes who from Whitechapel and found something else altogether. But describe why you came to them looking for prostitutes. Well, um, obviously, anybody familiar with um, the Jack the Ripper legend, and I will call it a legend because that's all it has actually ever been. Um, If you ask anybody, you say, well, tell me something about Jack the Ripper. What what do you know about Jack the Ripper? And the first thing people will say is, oh, Jack the Ripper uh, killed prostitutes in Whitechapel. That's the first thing. So, of course, I mean, look, there was a time when I knew absolutely nothing about these women either. And I wouldn't, as a historian, have considered this as a valid subject for historical investigation. Um, Were it not because I was looking for another subject to write about, which would draw on the work that I had done originally for my first work of nonfiction, which was The Covent Garden Ladies. And the Covent Garden Ladies is um, the story of a notorious guidebook to sex workers in 18th century Covent Garden. Um, and, uh, and the amazing thing about that is that you have these little paragraphs, um, entries for all of these women which profile their names and their ages and where they lived and all little aspects of their lives. And this captured the public imagination so much. People wanted to know about the ordinary lives of ordinary women um, that I thought, well, you know, I'd like to revisit this with the next thing I write. So I'm going to do this with uh, 19th century prostitution. And of course, the first thing that came to mind was, um, well, who were the most famous prostitutes of the 19th century? Well, that will be the victims of Jack the Ripper. And of course, that's the starting point. And when I started looking at the material, suddenly just this, this legend just started to evaporate because I realized it was based on, on virtually nothing. There was no credible evidence that three of the five women were involved in sex work at all. Let's just drill into evidence altogether for this story. You've got newspaper reports, which 
one can now presume are about as accurate as newspaper reports today. Absolutely. You've got um, census forms, which we think give accurate factual information, at least about birth deaths. And yes, birth deaths. yeah. And crucially and rather extraordinarily, you have transcripts of workhouse interviews. Yes. Which are among the most alarming in, in one way, but also thorough pieces of documentary evidence that you were dealing with. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the, uh, these are the, the workhouse examinations are fascinating. I mean, and again, this is something which I would say, putting this to, to the side for a moment and saying, for most of my life as a social historian, I was always told we cannot tell the stories of the poor because the poor didn't leave diaries and memoirs and these sorts of things. And so we have no way of knowing how they lived their lives. And I, w- I was sold that pup when I was a postgraduate. And, um, and I think so many other people were as well. And that is so untrue. There is so much information out there to give us a sense of how ordinary people live their lives. And this enormous body of, of, of workhouse documents is, is one way in which we can penetrate into the lives and experiences of the poor. Um, first of all, they're, they're the ledgers, the, you know, the um, uh, admiss- admissions and discharge, um, which tell you who, who goes into the workhouse and who comes out and when they go in and when they come out and how old they were and where they were before and what their profession was and who they were married to or, or still married to and who their children were and if they have any relatives who might possibly look after them and um, and in all sorts of things because it was very important to keep track of um, how much money was being spent by the ratepayers. So the Victorians were very good at keeping records. But one of the most extraordinary things about this are um, uh, the examination documents because when you enter the workhouse, um, the, the guardians want to know, the guardians of the workhouse want to know whether you should be there or not because it's like means-tested benefit because if you don't belong there, they're going to send you off somewhere else to Holborn Union or Lambeth Union or where you originally from. So they ask you a whole series of questions and in that you give your story. You say, my name is Polly Nichols and my husband and I split up right around Easter time and um, I, I didn't know where to go and um, eventually I came to this workhouse and then they told me I couldn't go to this workhouse and my husband's name is this and he works as this and 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 um um I slept here last night and I slept there last night and I'm really ill and and this is an amazing document and we have these for lots and lots of uh, impoverished inhabitants of the 19th century and they're extraordinary records let's talk about Polly a bit more she she comes into the workhouse because her marriage goes disastrously wrong. She has five children. Yes. And her husband is having an affair with a younger woman next door. And the thing that makes a marital breakdown into a workhouse breakdown is alcoholism. Yes. Yeah. Now, do we know what she was drinking, how it happened, what the medical falling away was well it's interesting this because i mean there are lots of different perspectives and again as with history it's whoever is telling the story there's always you know it's that person's point of view so um the reason why we know about what happened with her and and drink was because 
in the inquest following her death, both her father and her former husband, her estranged husband, um, uh, gave testimony. And her father, you know, there was a lot of acrimony still amongst amongst family members. And her, her father said, well, you know, the reason why she left was because her husband was having an affair. Um, and, um, you know, and it, it was terrible. And he turned around and said, well, you know, the reason why she left was because she was drinking so much. And now the interesting thing is, I then looked at the Peabody Flats where they were living in. The Peabody Flats were one of the first social housing initiatives in London. Um, and they were very strict about who they let in. It was only the worthy working classes who were allowed to pass through this whole kind of entrance examination where they came to your home and they looked to see if your children had their hair brushed and combed and if you swept your floors and that sort of thing. And, um, and you had to be upstanding, which meant you could not drink alcoholics were kicked out and I looked through all the ledgers and there was, you know, there, there was a fairly steady um, expulsion of people who drank from the Peabody Flats. So it could not have been the case that Polly had a problem with alcohol. That is not why her marriage broke down. So it gives you a whole different perspective on who may have been lying and who may have been telling the truth. Um, and that, that is interesting in itself. But alcohol certainly does play a major role in pretty much all of these women's lives, in, in the breakdown of their lives. And, and, and what I say is really not only is society responsible for the death of these women, even more so than Jack the Ripper, but alcoholism is as well. Let's talk about Annie Chapman. We know a bit about Polly's story. What's Annie's story? Well, I think alcohol is a very good segue into that because um, Annie Chapman, what I, I mean, for me, Annie's story grips me. Um, I mean, all of the stories are astonishing and amazing in their variation, I think, because, you know, we tend to group them as all the same. We're all poor women. They all had five very different experiences. And Annie Chapman's story is the story of a woman who really, who entered the lower middle classes from the working classes, from the working class. And... Um, Annie's father was in uh, was uh, a trooper in the Second Lifeguard, very very prestigious regiment, um, and managed to become a gentleman's valet, um, and so he was like Mr. Carson in Downton Abbey, um, and um, and Annie herself then married. Um, a, a, quite a, a well-placed servant, John Chapman, who was a driver to a, gen, to a, a gentleman, landowning gentleman. Um, and so the family lived well and they had um, a little cottage on this um, man's country estate and they even sent their eldest daughter to a girls' school. But the problem was what got Annie, what felled her in the end, was that she was an alcoholic. And her father had been an alcoholic and her brother was an alcoholic and she had inherited this terrible curse. Um, and she went to one of the first women's rehabilitation centers for alcoholics and she spent a year there and she came out and she still found it impossible to live without the alcohol and then her marriage broke down. And that is how eventually she, she ends up in Whitechapel. So it is alcoholism that gets her in the end. So she comes from a, a position of, of, of opportunity, of, a, of advancement and social mobility. Catherine Eddowes is also literate. 
Yes. And therefore, one would assume, would have opportunity again for movement. So how does she end up? What circumstance of male failure and partner failure leaves her on her own and vulnerable? Because the vulnerability of these women is extraordinary, and we'll come to how some of them Mm -hmm. died, because there's an extraordinary piece of work that you've done on that, which has been revelatory in the book. But just talk a bit about how Catherine started from uh, the possibility of having a life outside of London, of travelling, and and still fell. Well, I mean, I think that Catherine... In fact, I think Catherine had the worst set of circumstances of I think all of the women because she was born into a a very very large family and um at the time I mean the I mean again one of the things I found doing this is I mean something that we we know but here it is it kind of writ large which is the 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 lack of birth control I mean there the wealthy by the 19th century had come up with ways in which they knew they could control conception though not necessarily very effectively but there there were ways they could read about it there were books the poor were actively prevented from seeing that i mean annie besant was arrested for trying to distribute um information about birth control to the poor in whitechapel um so lack of knowledge about um controlling one's family size and also lack of education really prevents um the poor from going anywhere with their lives because all of the doors are shut and then women's work as well because women's work is so poorly paid that women cannot sustain themselves so Catherine Eddowes comes from a family a huge family her mother just keeps giving birth there are 12 children (coughs) and so you know a family gets poorer and poorer with each mouth it has to feed Um, but Catherine was incredibly fortunate because her father worked right near a charity school in the centre of London, uh, Dowgate Charity School in the city of London. And she was one of, she and her other sister, Emily, were picked to go to the school and learn to read and write. None of her, her other siblings, her sisters, could read and write. And so because of this, it was believed that she was being prepared for potentially a life in domestic service because if you were a working class woman that is the only direction in which you could go and there were, there were no other doors open to you you couldn't go become a shop assistant or something like that this was this was it because of your class um and unfortunately both of her parents died when she was 15 she was sent back to family she didn't know uh, in wilverhampton where her family came from and she was put to work in a factory she wasn't prepared for factory work and she hated it and she ran away um, and she was living in Birmingham with a, an uncle who was, a, who was a semi-professional boxer at the time, and she met a man called Thomas Conway, who was a ballad salesman, a traveling ballad salesman. And Catherine, I think, in a profound act of... I would just say that is the best job. Well, uh, uh, being a traveling tra- but it's not oh, really? oh. that's the thing is that you think it is it sounds wonderfully romantic but it is not romantic because if you if you research the experience of these chapmen as they were called um it is about sleeping in fields on a night like tonight if you're lucky sleeping in a barn if you're lucky sleeping next to a cow if you're lucky getting some food from a, a farmer who's going to give you a bowl of cabbage um and if you're doing that as a woman and you're pregnant, which she was on several occasions, it's a pretty bloody miserable life. But it's not factory work. 
and it's not it's not working in domestic service and th there was this i believe this kind of act of rebellion to actually turn her back on that as as her destiny and to do something totally different okay let's just bring elizabeth from sweden to london in sweden she goes into service and somehow gets put on something which is unironically called the Registry of mm. Shame. Yes. What is that and how does it come to Oh, you? yes, poor Elizabeth. Um, well, I mean, Elizabeth was born the daughter of a farmer, a fairly, a fairly comfortably off farmer. Um, and one of the things that these, these girls who were born in rural areas tended to do was to go into the local city to work, to become a servant, so they had enough money for a dowry. And then it, it, um, it expanded their horizons in terms of marriage partners as well, because they just weren't the right amount of boys. You know, they're looking for people like shopkeepers to marry. And that would give her an opportunity to do that. So Elizabeth goes into Gothenburg to become a servant. And um, after about sort of two years, she turns up pregnant and almost certainly would have been impregnated by somebody within the household, uh, simply because the laws governing um, service at that time were such that servants were not allowed to spend even a night without their servant, without 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 their master outside of the house. Um, and we know in many of these cases, the, the pregnancies, relationships between servants and, and employers were, were, were very, very common. Um, but at the time, deeply unfortunate, Gothenburg had brought in this legislation, which meant any woman suspected of working in prostitution, you don't even have to be uh, a dedicated prostitute. You just even have to be suspected, meaning um, a, a pregnant woman who is single, a man's mistress, even women who are out late at night quite frequently would go on this register of shame with known prostitutes. And then they would be liable for checks, venereal health checks once a week to see if they have syphilis. And this is what happened to Elizabeth. So um, she found herself in prostitution because there was no respectable work she could get. She found herself with syphilis, and she was seven months pregnant. And um, she was cured. Well, they gave her a cure. Obviously, syphilis was uncurable until the advent, really, of penicillin. Um, and um, and she, she lost the child. Uh, eventually, a woman came forward, um, Marie Wiesner, and took her into her household and got her off of the list of shame. Uh, and rehabilitated her, and then facilitated uh, her her move with an English family to to London. And what happens in London that means she ends up in Whitechapel? Well, it it's you know again this is a a kind of twisted tale of of uh, of a life spiraling downward very gradually. Um, for a time, her life was very promising, and she married a carpenter called John Stride. And um, they decided to do something entirely new, and they moved from the West End, where they both were living, to Poplar. And they opened a cafe. They often, well, opened a coffee house. Um, and um, the coffee house struggled. And eventually, the two of them fell on hard times and were in and out of the workhouse. Elizabeth was drinking, like the other women. Um, John died, and Elizabeth was left on her own and, and very briefly went back to prostitution. We know that because she appears in the police records in 1884 as, as being pulled, uh, as, as being, um, uh, uh, pulled up for uh, soliciting. Um, but we don't know if she, if she 
was caught again. We don't know what the situation was. So I think it's very difficult to say whether she had returned to it or not when she, when she died. But we have four women who are in their 40s, one of whom has some kind of proof of prostitution. Mm. And then we have Mary Jane Kelly, who is uh, unlike the others in quite important ways. Yes. I mean, Mary Jane Kelly was actually a sex worker. We know that. I mean, she, she is the one that I looked at. And yes, there it was, the whole trail of evidence. You know, lots of, of people coming forward, former madams, um, the boyfriend who she lived with, Joe Barnett, uh, lots of people who could attest to the fact that she lived that life. Really, really interestingly, Mary Jane Kelly was almost certainly not her name. Um, it was a name that she chose quite probably when she went to live in the East End. She had lived a life in actually high-class prostitution for quite a while. Define high-class prostitution. In the West End, living in Knightsbridge, practicing in um, what was then the the center of the sex trade, which was Piccadilly, uh, St. James, um, Soho, around that that area, Um, and would have spent time with men who she claims took around in carriages and bought her expensive clothes. Um, she would have gone to um, the music hall with him, probably the Alhambra music hall, which was the center of prostitution at that time, um, and, you know, out for dinners. And um, and she would have been treated very well. So more like an escort. More like an escort, yes. Um, but then something happens, and we know there was a real upturn in the late 19th century in um, sex trafficking to the continent. And actually, interestingly, even to South America from the continent, um, because technology meant that ships could get places much more quickly. They could bring goods to market. And of course, you're bringing human goods to market. So you could speed women around the world and switch them in and out of brothels. So Mary Jane was taken to uh, Paris um, and it was said that she, when she got there, she got away. And now when you get to Paris, you're put into a, what's called a maison close. It's very well regulated. You can't leave. There are prostitution police. And somehow she managed to come back to London. But she couldn't go back to the West End. So she hid out in, uh, the, around uh, the, the Ratcliffe Highway, which is uh, in the East End. And Mary Jane Kelly is killed... In her own... In her own bed. Bed, now, which may or may not be her place of work. But crucially, what you've discovered is that three of the other women were not only not killed in their own bed, but were killed in a manner which would suggest... That they were sleeping. Uh, yes. Um, so this is, this is something that struck me. I, I just cannot believe that nobody had thought of this. But then, yes, I can, because looking at the legend of Jack the Ripper, it makes perfect sense. Because the whole legend of Jack the Ripper has existed to put forward this notion that these women were prostitutes and bad women deserve to die, and bad women should be punished, and this is what happens when you're out late at night, and this is the, you know, this is, you know, these are the, 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 the wages of, 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 of your, your sin, is you know, is death. And, um... And the idea that these women were homeless, society had a very difficult time separating out a homeless woman, a a kind of destitute woman from a prostitute because um, under the vagrancy law, they all came under the same umbrella. So a woman out in a bad part of town by herself at night 
um, was, was there for one reason alone. She was soliciting sex. It had to be. She had no money. She was soliciting sex. But the reality is she could have been out there for any number of reasons. And for all three women, there, are, there is evidence that we know that they were, de- they, were, they were rough sleepers. And rough sleepers, just to get a scale on this. In 1887 in London, there are 70,000 people yes. sleeping rough. Yeah. And in the year after <coughs> Queen Victoria's Jubilee had been celebrated in Trafalgar Square... <laughs> There are somewhere between two hundred and six hundred people. Yes, yeah, sleeping every night in, in Trafalgar, Trafalgar Square. Square, and that's not even counting. That's not even counting the embankment. They slept on the embankment. They slept in Hyde Park. They slept in Green Park. They slept um, in all these little nooks and corners throughout the city, um, in doorways, in, in, in little courtyards, in, on, on church steps, around um, Christchurch Spitalfields. That whole, there's that whole area around there where they slept. So just, just define the physical reality of how you now know that they were killed while they were sleeping? Well, there are a number of things in, in the inquest uh, documents, which, first of all, the, the coroner discovered they, everybody, they were all killed in reclining positions. Um, and uh, there was no noise. There, was, there, were no sound, there were no signs of struggle. Um, and, um, and they were all killed in relatively public places. And they were all re- killed in relatively public places, but also places where homeless people were known to sleep. So, for example, Annie Chapman, the, literally the day after they cleared her body away, they found a homeless man actually sleeping in the place where her body was found. I mean, that, that would have been an, a place where homeless people knew where to go. Um, and we have records of all of them. Of, you know, uh, Catherine Eddowes, for example, her, her partner, John Kelly, says, well, there were nights, you know, we couldn't afford to uh, pay for a lodging house. So we walked the streets. Okay, walking the streets didn't mean soliciting. But it's been taken to mean that. You know, there are lots of other references to, um, to walking the streets in, other, um, in, in Charles Booth's book, uh, In Darkest England and the Way Out, in Howard Goldsmith's work about what walking the streets means. Walking the streets means you have no money for your DOS. So it's two o'clock in the morning and you walk along and you settle into a doorway and you go off to sleep there until a constable comes and moves you along. And then you walk a little bit further and you walk around until you find another dark corner to sleep sleeping and that's what these women were doing so this isn't any kind of moralistic in avenging angel getting rid of fallen women this is a guy who kills sleeping women and makes him a lot less of a romanticizable figure because yeah. he is romanticized he's given the sobriquet jack the which yes. traditionally goes with lad or yes. at least something familiar and, and approving yeah and that becomes really ugly yeah the further you get away from it Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, I, this whole idea that somehow you know Jack is so clever and he's almost a supernatural being. You know, look, he could he could evade de- detection. He could escape into the night. He could do all these terrible deeds and and never get caught. Um, you know, he's this 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 object of fear and terror, and to such a degree that you know. 130 years after he dies, we're still obsessed with how this man killed. Right. Can we, just before opening this to the audience, which I know there will be lots of questions that you want to, uh, to ask, can we just drill a little deeper into the economics of this? Because you said something about uh, how much money women were able to earn. And 
the, the answer to that is they would never be able to earn enough to be a breadwinner for right. a family. But if you're not a breadwinner for a family and you lose your job, you also become completely dependent upon some kind of relationship. Yes. Now, they all had children, they were all married, they all had partners. And the very fact of their partnerships also contributed to a problem of their own identity. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, this is the problem is we are dealing with the Victorian era. And we even to this day have this concept of Victorian morality. And my question is always, who's Victorian morality? Because the working classes had a completely different way of organizing their lives. Yes, there was a, a middle class Victorian morality, which was all about no sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage. Um, you know, husband's the head of the family. You know, wife is devoted to him um, and, and so on and so forth. For the poor, it was a completely different set of values. You know, bearing in mind, you know, the poor at various times comprised about 50% of the population. I mean, you really have to ask the question, whose morality? Whose morality? You know, we are not talking about the entire, there was no unified morality for this time. So if you are poor, if you are a woman and your husband walks out on you or dies, you have got to find somebody else very, very quickly to keep a roof over your head. Um, and so commentators talk quite frequently about how the working classes couple and uncouple and recouple at this alarming rate so that you, you know, it, and, and this is, these are kind of serial monogamous as well. So you have a woman who may have had a child with one man and the man walks off because he's looking for seasonal work somewhere and she desperately needs somebody else. And then she's with another man. She gets pregnant by him. She has a child by him and maybe she's with him for a couple of years and maybe he dies or disappears or whatever. And then she's got to find somebody else. And then she maybe she has a couple of kids by him. So she's got children by all these different fathers. She's not actually legally married to any of these. You know. And through the eyes of Victorian society, this woman is a whore. There is no other word for her. That is what they would consider her to be. But yet this was, this, these, this was normal for the working classes. So the designation of prostitute simply means working class, poverty-stricken woman. Quite frequently, yes, and it's conflated with lots of other things. It's conflated with the broken woman. The broken woman is a woman who is morally defective because she has uh, contravened the norms of what it means to be a woman in her society. So she is not a good mother. She is not a good wife. She is an alcoholic. She has uh, mental illness issues. She is not living at home. She, something has gone wrong, and that that is conflated with the fallen woman. The fallen woman has something sexually wrong with her. She has had sex outside of marriage. She is no longer pure. So if you're morally compromised in one way, you must be morally compromised in the other. Okay. Ali, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by our sponsors, Bailey Gifford Investment Managers, and comes at a time when we're launching the first ever Hay Festival digital programme. Please join us online for that. And for more access to recordings and both video and audio, please see Hay Player on our website.